Times like this bring on the anxiety. I know money is tight for a lot of people, so I'm applying a heavy discount to the Safe Empowerment System for social and generalized anxiety. It's normally $99, but for a limited period of time, I'm providing a 50% discount. So if you've been waiting to get this program, maybe now's the time. Visit quietbegins.com, and when you purchase, enter the code BRAIN50, that's BRAIN50, to get the discount. Life presents the toughest challenges. Every day you are faced with decisions that test your ability to express who you really want to be in this world. We're told to keep saying affirmations and keep thinking positively, but what do you do when that stuff doesn't work? Welcome to the Overwhelmed Brain, where you'll learn to make decisions that are right for you so that you can create the life you want now. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Paul Coliani and I'm here to help you increase your emotional intelligence so that you can avoid dysfunction, handle toxic situations with grace and ease, and show up as your authentic self. Everything I talk about on the show is my personal opinion and is meant for informational and educational purposes only. Always consult a medical or psychological professional before making any changes that could affect your physical or mental health. Yeah, speaking of health, I know you're probably hearing a lot about everything that's going on. If you're listening to this uh, in March of 2020, we have the virus going around, the coronavirus. But don't worry, I'm not going to make the show all about that because you are already hearing a lot about that. So I was debating, you know, what should I talk about? Should I talk about this virus? Should I talk about um, all the fears that come with it or all the propaganda that might be out there and all the truth that's getting twisted out there or uh, just the fact that uh, we're dealing with something that perhaps we haven't dealt with ever in our lifetime or at least you know some of us haven't dealt with ever in our lifetime Uh, and and what do we do about it what's the emotional impact on our lives so I dug through some old emails that I hadn't addressed on the show before and I found one Uh, coincidentally enough, on social anxiety. I say coincidentally because right now we are doing social distancing. So all those anxious people out there, if that's you, uh, maybe that's a reprieve. Maybe you're experiencing some level of uh, comfort in this distancing. Um, Or maybe you're not practicing distancing. I hope you are to contain the spread. But regardless, I, I think that it would be a good topic for today. I'm going to read this email and uh, let's see where we go with it. But um, I think it's a good topic. This person says, thank you for the podcast. It's been helping me during the hard times. I see you haven't made an episode on social anxiety, which is something I suffer from. And then stemming from that loneliness. And um, I'm 27. I moved about six hours from my hometown. And after seven years, haven't made a single friend that I could call to hang out with or for lunch, etc. When I go out, I always feel like an outsider. After spending so many years alone, it feels terribly difficult to meet new people. If there's a school gathering or a party, I don't feel a part of any group, and approaching a group to talk makes my hands sweat and I want to hide. Being a guy, this this is made especially difficult because I feel like every approach I make is construed as me hitting on them, which turns a lot of people off. All I would like is someone to talk to and maybe a friend. Anyway, English isn't my first language, sorry. My country is stereotypically a very hard place to meet people. 
No need to use my story if you don't want to, but an episode on social anxiety and or loneliness would be awesome. Thanks. Well, I'm using your story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for writing. And that's a very real thing. Social anxiety. I still get social anxiety, not to the extreme and not to the impact that it has on some people. But uh, where did I go? I think I was with a fellow coach podcaster, Matthew Bivens. We went to a podcast uh, meetup group and um, I wasn't anxious. I was just awkward. I think that's the word for me. I'm socially awkward sometimes. I mean, you may not think that if you've been listening to me for a while, but, and I'm not awkward in all situations. I'm just awkward in situations where I don't necessarily feel like I belong, (laughs) which is funny because I was in a group full of podcasters and we all podcast, but I feel like I was in a different mind space because I don't normally hang out with other podcasters. So, you know, I walk around sometimes awkward, like, I don't know what to talk about. That guy's a fisherman and that guy's a rapper and this woman does this and talks about pregnancy. I don't know what to talk about. (laughs) So I'm only saying this because I want to let you know I relate. I may not have social anxiety, but it does feel awkward sometimes when you're not in a crowd that really feels like you belong with that crowd. There's different things that I think about that other people think about. We all have our commonalities, like right now everyone's talking about the virus or politics and suddenly we have something to talk about and um, that's great. We can connect that way. But what do you do when you don't have anything to talk about with these people that we meet up with and we're trying to make friends? So this is a great thing to talk about today. I think it's a good time to bring it up too because when we are connecting with other people again and we can be physically closer to them. Um, because now we are on that restriction. You can't even meet in groups in a lot of places. But when we get into that space again, it would be great to have some tools. And it would also be great to have some understanding of what works and what doesn't. I mean, I thought about this. If I was socially anxious and I felt awkward, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, and of course I created a product on social anxiety called the Safe Empowerment System, and that helped me think about this a lot, and I talk to other experts about this a lot. The first thing that comes to my mind is I don't feel confident. I feel shy. Uh, I feel judged. I feel stupid. I feel inferior. All of these um, self-worth things come up for me. Uh, you know, a lot of them. A lot of them are, are have to do with self-worth. So I have some sort of, when I try this on, I have some sort of low self-worth going on. Okay, so I need to work on my self-worth. That would be something that I would need to do. How do I work on my self-worth? I've had episodes on this, but my in a nutshell process of working on your self-worth is inflating your ego. That sounds a little strange to some people if they've never heard me talk about this, but I believe that when you inflate your ego in a healthy way, where it's not overblown, and then you become a pretentious jerk, you inflate it in a way that makes you feel pretty damn good about yourself. I like that. If I can feel pretty damn good about myself, then I can walk around with a bit more confidence. How do I do that? Well, where am I inept? Where do I need help? Where do I feel self-conscious? And I explore that. I explore those things in me. Now, some people will say, well, I'm self-conscious about everything. I'm shy about everything. I feel stupid about everything. I feel uncomfortable about everything. I'm not um, the best at anything. And that can happen as well. 
But even just uh, being good at something like this person's good at musical instrument. This person's good at uh, race car driving. This person's good at fishing. I'll use that reference again. You become confident in yourself. And when you are around people that are impressed by that, or at least respect what it takes to do that, you feel more accepted and your self-worth typically goes up. I'm not saying that's the formula to solve all this. I'm just saying this is kind of an abstract concept that when you strengthen or increase your self-worth and boost your ego, that you're going to feel better about yourself. So you won't be so focused on what other people think of you. I'm not saying it goes away completely, but what a great first step. How can I boost my ego? How can I get good at something? Fortunately, there's a lot of education online nowadays. You can learn anything and become a somewhat decent expert at it. You want to become an expert at spreadsheets? No problem. Pull up YouTube. You want to become an expert at um, sign language? No problem. Pull up YouTube. And of course, there's courses that sell out there that you can buy as well. You might have to invest in yourself. I think investing in yourself, buying courses, buying programs that are meant to boost you in some way, shape, or form, you know, intellectually or even emotionally or spiritually. There are programs and workbooks and courses that you can invest in that will boost who you are. And when you invest in yourself, you walk around in that investment. You walk around in a heightened state of you. You expand you. And it's hard to look down at someone that is expanding themselves. It's hard to judge someone who's doing what they can to improve themselves. And I'm not saying that people look down at you or judge you, but that's what the person with social anxiety feels. They feel like someone's judging them. They feel like someone is looking down at them. All right, well, this is your opportunity to improve yourself, invest in yourself, and be the best you can be and uh, increase that ego and feel good about your accomplishments so that when you go out, go out into the world, you can own it. You can own the fact that you're pretty darn good at this thing or this many things. And the tricky part, but the best part about this is that there are not only people out there that will be impressed, but there will also be people out there that will be unimpressed. How is that good? <laughs> That's good because even when you're the greatest at almost everything in the world, there are still people that look down at you. There are still people that want to judge you and talk about you behind your back. It doesn't matter how great you get or how great you are. This is how some people are. They've got stuff going on in their own head and they're looking at other people. And this happens a lot. They see other people doing well and it makes them frown upon those people doing well because they themselves haven't done as well as they want to do. That happens too. That person's got more money than me. Therefore, they're a jerk and they're greedy. That person's smarter than me in geophysics. Therefore, they're a nerd and they're ugly and, you know, all these judgments that come out that make no sense, but they, it makes sense to the person judging because in order to judge someone, you have to have it in you. You have to have some sort of negativity swirling around in there to look at someone else and say, that person is X, Y, Z, you know, 
stupid, ugly, fat, um, bald, you know, they're going to come up with all these judgments because they themselves haven't come to terms with it in themselves. And what I mean by that is when I was judgmental, I was judgmental for many years, especially about my romantic partners. It was because I had things that I needed to heal in me that I chose not to look at. So I instead put the burden of my judgments on others so they would focus on themselves and I would make them feel bad and look bad so that I would feel better about myself. I mean, that's where all my judgment stemmed. And I think a lot of judgment stems in a lot of people is that we look at someone else and we have a judgment, but in order to judge them, there has to be something going on inside of us that we don't want to look at. We don't want to focus on our problem. We don't want to look at our trauma or old trauma. We don't want to heal from that trauma, whatever it is. Even if it's not trauma, it's just something that we need to look at in ourselves and process and maybe release. And when we do, the judgment stops because now we're no longer paying attention to other people and what they're doing, quote, wrong or, quote, badly. We just want to see that in them. We want to find the negative stuff in them so that we don't have to look at the negative stuff in ourselves. This is why so many people judge. They're so judgmental. They're they're so hurtful is that they don't want to deal with what's in them. So they look at someone else. And I went through a lot of years like that. Many, many years of judging others so that I wouldn't have to heal myself. And, you know, I didn't know I needed healing until I was struck with the reality that every relationship I lost, uh, they left me, which made me the common denominator. When you finally figure out that you're the common denominator of something, you realize there's something I need to do to change. There's something I need to do to heal. Not that you won't have bad luck in a lot of situations. You could be in bad situations and bad jobs and bad relationships And you could be getting the bad deal every time. Uh, That is certainly possible. But there's usually something that you can look at inside and ask yourself, what do I need to work on so that this stops happening to me? Just like when all my relationships were failing, I would be in a great relationship, then they would leave. I would be married and she wanted a divorce. I'm like, what the heck is going on? I finally decided to focus on the common denominator, me, and I asked myself, what do I keep doing to cause this? Now, I don't want to put you in victim mode. I don't want to make you think that all the bad relationships were your fault. That's not it at all. It's just a question. What can I do differently? What do I need to work on in myself so I stop having this happen in my life? Because I have some responsibility here. If I choose a relationship or a job or whatever, and it fails, you know, I lose it or I get fired, it's time to introspect a little bit. Now, again, it doesn't mean you're always going to find the cause. It doesn't mean you you can find it easily. Sometimes you need uh, an objective viewpoint. You know, that's why there's therapy or coaches like me. They give you that objective viewpoint. What am I doing? Is Is there something I can do differently? It's helpful. But back to the judgment thing. When you are the person judging, 
it is almost always something that you need to look at in yourself that you don't want to because you're just waiting for the other person to change to conform or adapt to who you are. Now, I, I totally simplified it there, and I don't mean to just put you in that category and, and tell you that's exactly how it is. It may not be for you, but that's a lot of the time judgment. That's where it comes from. And if you're the one who feels like you're being judged, the person who feels socially anxious, for example, again, I recommend that you find a way to improve yourself, increase your self-worth. I have shows on increasing your self-worth. A lot of my work on increasing self-worth has to do with um, visiting your inner child. And that either sounds woo-woo or psychobabble or whatever, but it's important that you understand that what you feel about yourself usually stems from a younger version of you. So if you visit a younger version of yourself, in your mind, you know, you go back in time and you remember yourself as a 10-year-old, a 5-year-old, or however old, uh, whatever comes to mind for you, then you have a conversation with that child version of yourself and you ask that child version, how are you doing? Are you okay? How are things going? And usually what will end up happening is when you go back in time in your mind, you'll find a, a moment in time where that child version of yourself needs you or needs something. You, you go back and you ask uh, your inner child, what do you need? What can I do for you? And you just be a friend, uh, uh, someone who cares. And you're gentle with that child. And the most important part, you're giving that inner child what they didn't get back then. And it doesn't matter if you had the best childhood ever. There's a moment in time, typically, where you didn't get what you wanted and it might have stuck with you. It might have become imprinted on you. Where maybe your mom or your dad or your uh, caretaker didn't give you the love that you wanted in that one moment. Didn't praise you for the Crayola drawing on the wall. <laughs> they didn't say what you wanted to hear. And you were so proud. And they didn't say, I'm so proud of you. They said something else. They said, you got to wipe that crap off the wall right now. And you were squashed. You were invalidated. You felt low and you felt humiliated. You know, whatever feelings you would have in a moment like that. And then you spent the time angry or upset or sad wiping it off the wall. I'm using this as an example. But you know what I mean? When you go back and you visit that child that you were inside your mind's eye and you have this conversation, there's going to be a time that they needed something they didn't get. And what can you give them that they didn't get? You know, when I think of that scenario, I think of my inner child writing on the wall, which I don't think I ever did. I almost tried to burn the house down once, but I don't think I have any leftover trauma about that. My mom might. But uh, using this scenario, I might see a child version of myself writing on the walls. And when he got chastised or put down, I would come into the picture. And while he was crying and wiping off the wall, I would say, hey, it's all right. You know, sometimes this happens. We try to do the best we can. We want our mom or dad to be proud of us. And they're in a bad space that day. And maybe what we tried to do didn't come across very well. And it's not because they didn't love us. It's not because they didn't love you. It's not because they weren't proud of you. Because they are. I know they are. 
And I would just talk to my inner child like this and have this conversation that lifts him up. This is what I do with self-worth stuff. I mean, not the only thing, but I think that's a big part of increasing self-worth is reminding that child in us, the one that holds on to negativity, the that holds on to trauma and gets emotionally triggered every now and then that everything's okay and we're going to make it through this together. I think it's okay to connect with that part of us because it does carry these things. And even if you're not crazy about this inner child stuff, uh, just talking to yourself, just, you know, talk to yourself even today. If you feel some sort of fear or sadness or anything that comes along, another part of you can talk to you. I'm splitting your personality as we speak. No, I'm kidding. What I'm saying is that we all have this observer in us. We can observe our own feelings like, hey, I'm feeling sad. Well, of course, that's an observer when you say something like that. I'm feeling sad. I'm observing my sadness. Now I can jump into that sad space. Oh, I'm feeling it. Now I'm really sad. And then I can jump out of it and tell myself, hey, I'm feeling pretty sad. What's going on there? This is where the critical thinking mind separates from the emotional mind. And you're able to talk to yourself like that. So even if there's no inner child stuff going on, there's still the observer that can step back and look at oneself and ask questions and comfort and say, hey, look, everything's going to be all right. We're going to make it. You know, you made it through worse before. This is going to be fine. And maybe the observer needs to say, you know what? That guy's a jerk anyway. <laughs> it make you feel not so alone. You know, it's one little tiny component of dealing with any type of loneliness that comes your way, which uh, I'm going to have something a little unique later as I close the show about loneliness. But that is something you can do for yourself. You can talk to yourself. And talking to yourself is so healthy. In my opinion, I think talking to yourself is so healthy. We all do it. <laughs> Not too many people might admit that, but we all do it, even if it's inside our own head. I wonder what I ate for breakfast today. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder if I ate breakfast today. I wonder if I went to the bathroom yet. I mean, we get so focused and busy. Sometimes that happens, but hopefully you know if you've gone to the bathroom. But wrapping this up, let me tell you my definition of self-worth versus self-esteem. You may have heard me say this before, but self-worth is how you feel about yourself based on how others feel about you. And what I mean by that is uh, it typically comes from parents when you're first starting out, like your parents are either going to make you feel worthy or not. And how you accept that or not accept it increases or decreases your worth, or at least how valuable you feel. So you are seeking external validation for your worth, for your level of valuableness. And when someone puts you down as a child, when you're most susceptible, the way you feel about yourself usually goes down. So self-worth is how you feel about yourself based on how others feel about you. And that's all interpreted inside your mind. They may love you. They may be proud of you. But once you interpret their behavior or their actions or their words as devaluing, you carry it with you until it's resolved or unless they approach you again and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm sorry I yelled at you about the wall. It's just that, you know, I, I paid a lot of money for the wallpaper and I really loved your work. In fact, I'm going to get you some big pieces of paper so you can draw on it and then we can tape them to the wall. And that way we can see your amazing art because you're an amazing artist 
and we don't have to change the wallpaper. That might be something that hopefully a, a parent does to refill that value because sometimes it doesn't get refilled. And when it doesn't, that's what we carry with us. So self-worth, we are getting externally validated. Now, self-worth turns into self-esteem. How you feel about yourself after you grow out of that phase, out of of childhood. Self-esteem develops, and this is kind of my own um, deduction of how this works. Self-esteem develops out of your self-worth. So now you take how valuable you feel based on the words, actions, or behaviors of others and you turn it into self-esteem and it's basically how you feel about yourself based on the data you've gathered over the years. So if you have low self-esteem, that means you don't really have confidence in yourself or you don't think you're that great or you don't think you're that attractive or self-esteem covers a lot of ground, but you're no longer taking the words of people outside of you and applying it as much when it comes to increasing your self-worth. And what I mean by that, because it's a little tricky, is that when you have low self-esteem and someone praises you, it might hit your ego a little bit. But if your self-esteem is already low, you'll get that quick high and then it'll go back low. And it's hard to increase self-esteem by itself. This is why I suggest the inner child work and working on your self-worth how valuable you are, how important you are, so that self-esteem increases by itself. Self-esteem stems from how much self-worth you feel. That's really the bottom line. And self-worth is a measurement of your own value based on how other people treat you. So you have the internal of self-esteem and the external of self-worth, at least where you're looking for validation. And if you've been made to feel worth less over the years, your self-esteem will be lower. So again, I'm going to repeat this a little bit. To raise your self-esteem, to raise how worthy you feel inside yourself, you have to start with your self-worth. That's kind of the sequence of events that has to happen, which means you invest in yourself. You improve yourself. You do what you can for yourself so that you feel better about yourself, even in one small area. Even if you became the best pencil sharpener, If you look at a pencil and you go, wow, that thing is awesome. It is sharp. It is to a point. I'm the best pencil sharpener I know. It may sound silly, but it's going to feel pretty good when you do something like that. Something small for yourself. If you're not used to doing things like that. Wow, I just washed my car and it is spotless. (laughs) I am the best car washer I know. Look at that. It's something to be proud of. I mean, I get that way washing the dishes. (laughs) I feel good about something I accomplished. It's something I enjoy doing, actually, because it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever played Pac-Man, when you clear a screen, it feels like a sense of accomplishment. That's what washing the dishes feels like to me. It's a sense of accomplishment. I did this. My girlfriend loves it, too, so (laughs) it all works out. But uh, working on yourself, working on social anxiety, and of course, attacking loneliness, all of this is related. It's all associated. It's all connected to each other as you improve yourself, as you boost that ego in a healthy way, and as you really allow the worth and the value and the importance of who you are at the deepest level to sink in, social anxiety and other negative feelings that you don't want to have start to diminish. They start to go away. And that feels a lot better because if you don't have anything to be proud of yourself for, 
It's going to be very difficult to look at someone else and think they're going to be proud of you for something. That's what we do. We do this to ourselves. We're not proud of ourselves or think we're important. So we look at other people and think they think that about us too. I don't want you to feel that way. When we come back, I'm going to talk about this email that I received. I mean, we've been talking about it in a broad sense, but I want to get a little bit more specific because in the email, he's asking, how do I make friends? I mean, I've been here for years and I haven't made any friends. I think that's a good topic to talk about. So we'll be right back right after this. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I talked about the social anxiety and general anxiety program that I have called the Safe Empowerment System. And right now, if you're hearing this ad, it is 50% off. So if you've been holding off, go to quietbegins.com. And when you purchase, use the code word BRAIN50, B-R-A-I-N-5-0, and you'll get 50% off. That's probably the lowest price I'll put out there. And I just want to Make sure it's available to you if you are dealing with anxiety because of everything that's going on or you've been waiting to buy the program and just haven't had the money. So this may be the time to do it. Quietbegins.com, the safe empowerment system for both social and generalized anxiety. You can read all about it there at the website, quietbegins.com. Make sure to use the promo code BRAIN50. Welcome back. Like I said, I want to talk about uh, what it takes to make friends. (laughs) No, I don't want to make it sound like that's all I want to talk about, but there is something very specific that I've been mulling over when it comes to making friends. Because, I mean, I can relate to this guy who wrote the email. He's been where he is about, what, seven years? Wow. Uh, No friends. Why is that? What's going on there? You know, social anxiety plays a big part of that, of course. Uh, maybe the only part of that. But when I lived in Oregon, I tried to make friends. I, I lived there for three years and you know I met people at work when I worked at a hospital, but I never actually made friends that I could call up and say, hey, let's go out. And a lot of that was these people already had friends. So I felt like a stranger trying to establish myself in a group of people or a clique really of people that already had each other. And so one thing that I found out is that the people I was trying to be friends with, they, like I said, already had friends, but I thought they had to be like me. I thought they had to be around my age and male and have maybe some similar interests. You know, I never drank beer, but these other people drank beer, but um, maybe I could, you know, drink something else. And I couldn't relate to these people. But what ended up happening is that I would make friends with people that I didn't expect. A couple older ladies that I made friends with and one of my bosses that was very kind to me and all of these people that came into my life that I would have absolutely felt very comfortable talking to and enjoying a conversation with. Uh, But I never considered them my friends. So what's interesting is when I left Oregon and I remember these people that I used to hang out with 
uh, you know, talk to after work and connect in different ways and really have some heartwarming conversations, I never considered them my friends, even though they were showing up in ways that a normal friend would. This was just mind blowing when I thought about it because I thought, well, the guys I met that were around my age or a little younger, uh, they didn't want to hang out with me. They didn't want to be with me. They didn't want to talk to me. You know, I felt that. I wasn't too stressed about it, but it, it, it made me realize, oh, well, it's hard to make friends. And I was just overlooking these other people. I made friends with uh, senior citizens and we have great conversations. And I didn't even realize that I could just go out and have a great conversation with these people. I may not be able to go play ultimate frisbee with them or volleyball or any of those active things. But then I think, well, do I want to do that anyway? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I might, but, uh, you know, rock climbing is out of the question with some people. But good conversations, that's hard to find. When you can find someone that you can have a good conversation with, even if they're not like you, that's a big deal. And so I was, I'm just telling you this because I was overlooking that when I lived in Oregon. And if that helps you have a different perception of what qualifies as a friend and what doesn't, uh, maybe that'll help with the people that are in your life. Even my mom, when my wife left and I left Oregon and I went to live with my mom for about um, 10 months, I got to know her in a, an entirely different way and we became really good friends. I mean, we were always friends, but to know her in a new way without her husband there, my ex-stepfather that uh, really put her through the ringer in their marriage, without him in the picture anymore, I got to know my mom without him around and she was just a fun person to be with. She's one of my best friends. So I have all these friends in my life that I don't even consider friends and I'm wondering, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? I have a lot of friends when I think about it this way. There are several people that I can call up right now. I mean, this is just kind of exploding in my mind right now that some of the people that I haven't considered friends, they definitely are because these are the people that I could call up and I know they'd lend a listening ear and they'd have some good information or advice or suggestions for me. So don't discount the people in your life just because they may be not what you look at as a friend. Or if you do look at them as a friend, maybe you're from different worlds or different time periods in life and you just see things differently, but you still have good conversations. I think we can redefine what friendship means between people. And if you are one of those people that don't have friends, you're going to meet someone that doesn't have a friend either and would love to have a conversation with you. But sometimes we don't allow them into our circle, our friendship circle, because we don't think we're going to have a great conversation with them. But that's just one thing to think about. And where I'm going to go with this uh, segment is that I believe that most friendships are made in receptive environments. And what I mean by that is that you can be around someone that is more receptive to talking, to getting information, to be helped, or you can be around someone that is intentionally isolating themselves from other people. And let me give you a couple examples. There's a difference between um, watching someone push their shopping cart by you in a grocery store where it looks like they're on a mission. They're not making eye contact and they just want to get the next item and the next item and the next item and then get the hell out of there. <laughs> There's a mission on their mind and they're not really receptive to talking. And anyone that wants to pick someone up in a grocery store, listen up. <laughs> if you are getting the cold shoulder, it's because these people probably aren't receptive. They're probably not looking to get picked up there. They're probably not looking for anything except talk about maybe shopping 
For example, if someone's uh, in front of the cheese and you say, have you ever made a cheesecake? And they go, hmm, yes, I did. And it was difficult or whatever they say. You might have a conversation there. It could open receptivity. Absolutely. But if you suddenly mention out of the blue, hey, you know, I'm going out for drinks tonight. You want to join me if you're trying to pick someone up or even, hey, how you doing? My name's Paul. It might be a little strange because people are already closed off. There's already a wall there. I mean, you probably feel this too. If you're going to the grocery store and you just want to pick your stuff up and get out of there, you're probably not receptive unless you're an extrovert and you don't care and you like talking. But for the most part, you know what I'm saying? There are people out there that are focused on their next thing, don't really want to get into a conversation. And so they are intentionally isolating themselves from the rest of the world. You know, they're in the world, but they're isolating in their own little bubble so they can get their job done and move on. And uh, then there are those that are receptive. You may or may not see those at a place like the grocery store. In fact, you will. You'll see a few people like that. But where can you find more receptive people? You know, first thought that comes to mind is a classroom environment. Whenever you're in a classroom environment, there's a receptivity to learning. And people's walls are down because they're open, because they want to learn information. And if you are a student in this classroom next to another student, you're both receptive and you're both more likely to have a successful conversation, whatever that means. You know, is you are more likely to be able to converse with somebody because they're open, they're receptive. They may or may not be receptive to you specifically. That happens sometimes, but they are receptive because they're in that learning environment. It also works in like meetup groups. If you meet other people in meetup groups and you are open to connecting, or it might be a learning group, uh, it could be a number of types of groups where other people are receptive to meeting you and talking to you, you're more likely to get friendships that way. So this is something to keep in mind, uh, thinking about the environments that you may be trying to connect with people or make friends. Is this a receptive environment or is it more conducive to isolation? Like I think of the person pushing the shopping cart, they're isolating themselves, they're on a mission, they're going to get out of there. And you have no chance to talk with them or at least have a meaningful conversation with them. But when I used to go to like seminars and I would watch a personal growth speaker on stage, I would be next to other people that were totally into it, just like I was. And when you're in that same space, you're really likely to make friends. In fact, uh, my girlfriend and I did something a few months ago. I think I talked about it before. We went to an improv class. It was suggested to me by one of the uh, people in the safe system, actually, and somebody I've interviewed before, Charlie Hone. He wrote a book on anxiety called Play It Away, and he said improv changed his life. We went to one improv class, and we plan on doing more. That's improvisational comedy, where you're on stage with other people learning how to do improv, which is basically um, making stuff up on the spot. But there are like these games that you play that help you break out of your shell. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be great at this. I love being improvisational and I love cracking jokes on a dime. Let's see if I can do this. And I went there and I wasn't cracking jokes on a dime because it was a little bit more challenging because of the games they presented. But that was a good thing because everyone felt challenged. Everyone there, unless they did improv before, everyone felt challenged. So when I would delay 
and trying to say something and nothing came out or something stupid came out, uh, the next person would too. And the next person would be fine. And the next person would delay as well or say something that wasn't that funny. (laughs) And we're all in the same boat. So when you find other people that are in a challenging situation like you, they are also receptive. And this is what I found out about the improv class is that everyone in this group, they just laughed. They got along. They were doing silly things. They were doing stupid things. And we were all laughing because we were all in the same boat trying to figure it out. And a good teacher will do that. They will make you all feel comfortable when you feel stupid. And this is what happens. You feel embarrassed. You feel weird. And maybe your anxiety comes up. But then you realize everyone's in the same boat. And improv really highlights that. So I highly recommend it. I can't wait to go back. And it changed, like I said, my uh, guest, that expert, Charlie Hone. He went to it and it changed his life. And it just makes you more comfortable socially and helps you think of funny stuff on the fly. And it re- it's really cool. And it relies on your subconscious mind to come up with stuff instead of trying to think of what to say next. It just can happen that way. Just eventually things will start happening inside your mind where you really don't have to try that hard. (laughs) It's not all like that, but if you don't have to try that hard, life becomes easier. So if you're trying to communicate with people, if you're trying to think of what to say, and that happens more automatically, you might be a lot more comfortable talking to people. So keep that in mind. Give that a shot because almost anyone can do that even if you're nervous, because there are other people that are nervous there too. Just like I was, I was nervous there and I was amongst like 20 or 30 people and they weren't all looking at me. They were all doing the same thing as me, except they were all doing different things, but we had the same assignment. It was really cool. So that was a receptive place. Grocery store, not so much. Um, Other receptive places, like I said, uh, the meetups and learning environments, classrooms, uh, churches. How about churches and spiritual centers? They're often receptive places. Welcome. Come on in. You're welcome here. No matter what, you know, there are some churches that are more restrictive and maybe, maybe not you'll feel welcome there. Or maybe those are your peeps and everything is good, but you find these groups of people that are just so welcoming. And that might be a place where you connect with others and you can talk with others and you don't feel judged. You feel accepted. So places like that can be a place to make friends. Bookstores. How about that? Bookstores feel like, okay, everyone's isolated and they're in their own space. There are those people there. And then there are those people that, hey, you're looking at uh, Java programming. I'm looking at Java programming. What do you do for a living? Is this a hobby? Then you start talking about the same book. So that can happen. But even more uh, about meeting receptive people in a bookstore is when the author comes in and holds like a lecture or a Q&A or something like that where everyone who likes that author sits together and watches and listens to them speak. I think that's a neat way to connect with other people that are receptive and have common interests. That might be a thing or even a book club, joining a book club. So I know this segment's very practical. Here's all these ideas. You can meet people. But I I really want to get the concept of receptivity versus intentionally isolating. When you are around people in an environment that is conducive to isolation, you're probably not going to get that much conversation. Just like if you're in a receptive environment, you probably will. And it'll probably be more comfortable because people are open to conversing. And now that reminds me of like when you go to a social event, like a party, uh, eventually we'll all go to social events again. 
after this virus stuff passes us by and hopefully we're all safe and get through it. But uh, if you're at a social event and you feel like maybe I want to talk to somebody, I should be talking, I should be social, I should be friendly, look for the receptive people there. And this is where you start to develop a keen sense of observing body language and especially eyes because the eyes will tell you a lot as well. So body language in the sense that uh, someone's standing there and they're nervous, you can usually tell. They're either nervous or awkward, like I sometimes am, and they're looking around and they're trying to make eye contact with people, but they don't know what to do, and they're standing alone. You know, you can add up all these dots and realize that person probably feels uncomfortable talking to other people or at least initiating conversations. Maybe I should go initiate a conversation with this person. Now, it sounds a little bit opposite. That sounds like, well, that person's socially isolating. They don't want to talk to people. Not necessarily. You just have to look at the body language and the eyes because if they ever make eye contact or if they smile at you, um, you know, just an innocent smile and they're just hanging out doing nothing, uh, maybe they want to talk and maybe they don't or maybe they're not even sure what they want. They just don't know what to do and they may be in the exact same boat as you. So this is why I like to watch body language. If somebody is at a party and they're isolated, but they're not intentionally isolating, they just feel like, well, I don't know what to talk about. I don't know any of these people. What do I do? That could be someone that if you feel awkward or anxious that you could go talk to because you're going to have that kind of same vibe going on. You might have that same energy going on between you where, oh, you're nervous too. Oh, good. I feel nervous. This is somebody I can relate to. So even at that level, you can relate to other people in a somewhat negative space to lift both of you up. That's something that I like to do is like, I like to look around and pretend I think I know what they're thinking. And then I go over and maybe say something or maybe not. Maybe I don't want to talk to anyone. Maybe I just want to be my, by myself. That's totally your choice as well. But I'm just giving you all these practical things that you can do. If you ever feel like I can't make friends or I'm always lonely, there are ways you can connect, but there has to be some level of receptivity in there. And let me just conclude this with the best way to start conversations. And that is with no strings attached. Meaning you don't start a conversation in hopes to get someone's phone number. I mean, you can, it's totally up to you. I'm not telling you, you shouldn't do that. But if you are dealing with anxiety, if you are nervous, take out the attachment. You know what? I'm not attached to this person's phone number. How about take out the attachment? If this person finds me likable or attractive, take out that attachment. I don't care if they find me likable. I don't care if they find me attractive. What that starts to do is allow you to be more authentic without trying. You know what? I don't care if they make fun of my lisp. I don't care if they look at that mole on my nose. I don't care. I don't care what they say or do. It doesn't matter to me. I'm probably never going to see this person again. So I'm just going to go be myself. It's a great way to approach life. Have no expectations and no attachments. And suddenly you're having conversations and you just don't care. When you do that, the anxiety has nothing to be attached to. Well, if I do care, then the anxiety has something to attach to. But if I don't care, where is the anxiety? Where does it go? Where does it come from? It has nothing to grab onto. And if there's nothing there to grab onto, it doesn't stick around. Again, I'm simplifying some things and I know anxiety is worse for some people than others, but these are just baby steps and you start doing these things and finding out what happens and seeing if your life changes. But I do believe that uh, a lot of anxiety and awkwardness comes from expectations and 
how you believe people will judge you and they'll, how they'll feel about you. And if you have any attachment or expectations, you have these strings attached, like I hope I get their phone number. I hope they want to go to the movies with me tomorrow. All of those attachments, when you put them as part of your conversation, they create stress. They can. They can create a lot of stress. So it's best just to throw them out the window. I don't care about their phone number. I don't care if they want to go to the movies with me. I'm just going to have a conversation right here, right now, be in the present moment and talk with them as if they were just another human being on this planet that I may or may not ever see again. And I'll say, hey, how's it going? And see where it goes from there. And they may say, oh, it's going fine. And then I'll have nothing to say. (laughs) And then I might actually say, and this is something I teach too, well, I thought I had something to say, but I don't. (laughs) And they might laugh. Or you could say something like, you know, I hate starting conversations because I feel anxious. I think it's a great opening line for anyone with anxiety because you address the anxiety. When you address what's going on inside of you, it gives it a voice and it gives it a release. There's like an energetic release where you're holding all this anxious energy and you say, you know what? I hate starting conversations because I'm so anxious. Just saying it can be part of the release. And the other person is almost always going to acknowledge it. Oh, I totally get what you mean. Or they're going to say, oh, wow, I never feel anxiety. Tell me about it. What's going on? Why do you feel anxious? They're going to allow you to talk about it. I think one of the worst things that happens to us is that when we are carrying around some sort of negative feeling or negative energy, that we don't bring it up to be processed and released, even publicly, like saying, oh, I feel anxious. I feel like an awkward conversation starter because of my anxiety. And because we don't say it, we hold it in, we stuff it back down and it builds and it amplifies and it feels worse inside of us. And it continues to churn in a way that makes us feel bad. So we end up not doing the things that we want to do because this anxiety or this fear is building up in us when all we had to do is say, hey, look, I have this fear. I have this anxiety and it's awkward for me to start conversations, you know, or something like that. And when it comes out, it's a conversation piece. It's out on the table and it can't hide anymore. The anxiety doesn't hide inside of you. It's out to be talked about. It's out to be discussed and maybe even forgotten about in a matter of seconds because that can happen. That can absolutely happen. I want to thank the person who wrote and thank you for tuning in. I know that you could be listening to any show right now, but you chose to listen to this one and I appreciate you. We'll be right back. I'll say some thank yous and my goodbyes and um, a unique segment at the end where I talk about loneliness right after this. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. I want to remind you to head over to quietbegins.com and check out this safe empowerment system for social and generalized anxiety. And uh, put in the code BRAIN50 if you want 50% off for a limited time. Um, I don't know when it's going to end, just like we don't know when this virus is going to end. So do it while it's there. BRAIN50 is the code, quietbegins.com. I also want to thank an iTunes reviewer who gave this review Wait for it. Discouraging. Three stars. (laughs) 
This person says, I couldn't even get through the first 15 minutes of an episode. If you want to be realistic, then this is for you. But this is not the type of podcast that will encourage you to reach for the stars. Disappointed. Why did I read that to you? <laughs> because I am transparent on the show. I like to read the negative reviews, just like the positive ones. But I also wanted to say, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing I disagree with. Um, I don't know why they couldn't get past the first 15 minutes. I must have been talking about myself or something. They said, if you want to be realistic, then this is for you. Great. I mean, he or she didn't say this isn't for you. They said this is for you. Great. That's what I want. I want people to be realistic. I want you to have critical thoughts about everyday life, about your personal improvement, about healing and growing. Realistic means that you're not denying yourself. You're not in some fantasy world. You're actually tackling your problems or working on the real challenges in your life. I agree. If you want to be realistic, yes, this show is for you. So the reviewer is right there. And then they said, but this is not the type of podcast that will encourage you to reach for the stars. I agree. <laughs> There's nothing I disagree with in this review. So this is one of the most positive negative reviews I've ever received. And um, I am not the person here that motivates you to reach for the stars. I'm not going to fill your head with all this positive talk and say, you can do it. I mean, I believe you can do it. I know you can do it. I know you have the capacity to be greater than you ever think you could be, unless you have one of those healthy egos and you tell me, no, Paul, I know I can be great. <laughs> I know I could be greater than you think I could be. Then that's awesome. And I want that for you. And absolutely, I know you can reach the stars, but I don't use that kind of language. I'm not the motivational guy that comes on and says, no matter what challenge comes your way, you can tackle it day after day. I just don't do it. I mean, maybe it comes out in little moments and little sparks here and there in the show. But I really, really, really appreciate practical advice. If somebody just told me, all you had to do is count to 10 and then you won't be anxious anymore. I'm going to shut that thing off, never tune in again, and cross that off my list to never listen to again. But with my show, I don't like to do that. I like to give you something very practical, very applicable uh, things that you can take with you as soon as you shut this off and you can start doing now. So reaching for the stars could take many, many, many years, but improving how you feel about yourself, that can happen pretty quickly. That can happen in minutes. And sometimes you're going to hear just the right thing on this show. And sometimes it will take a show or two before you go, oh, now I get it. Or, oh, that makes perfect sense. I haven't been doing that. That's my goal. My goal isn't to help you get into a rocket ship and reach the stars. So this person's right. I respect this review. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying that this was a discouraging show. <laughs> I'm grateful. I'm grateful for anyone that actually leaves a review, takes the time to leave a review, even the negative ones, because that tells me that they actually care about what's going on in the world. They actually care about what other people expose themselves to. And if someone gets something negative from the show, they want to tell other people. And it really impresses me when someone actually puts a negative review to give me an opportunity to read it and comprehend and absorb it and figure out if they're right or if they're just one of the very tiny few that feel this way. Otherwise, I wouldn't know how people feel about the show if they never left reviews. So again, thank you for that review. I also want to thank the patron members. Anyone that joins the patron program at patron.theoverwhelmedbrain.com 
I appreciate you. Thank you for your support, for your donations. And I'm so grateful that you feel that you're getting value from the show enough to give back. You can do that at patron.theoverwhelmedbrain.com. And of course, I like to give back even more because when you join that site, you get the private episodes, you get the private workbooks and worksheets, you get discounts on my products and my coaching, all kinds of things over there. So it's worth checking out. So I appreciate you, patron members. I am grateful for you. And a couple other things I want to mention. I have another podcast. If you've never heard me talk about it, it's called Love and Abuse. If you're in a difficult relationship and you can't figure out why it's so difficult, go to loveandabuse.com and maybe you can learn something that uh, will help you through the difficulties in your relationship. And also, uh, if you're looking for something to do while you're social distancing, the Overwhelmed Brain book might be something that gets you through the times. It is a book on self-empowerment and personal growth and really the A to Z of practical application of everything I talk about on this show. So if you're looking to fill your time with something because you have all this free time now, right, we all have free time. (laughs) I know some people that are actually busier now that they're not working. So I understand that too. But if you have any free time, go to your favorite bookseller and look for The Overwhelmed Brain, Personal Growth for Critical Thinkers. And finally, I'd like to thank Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in the overwhelmed brain. And like I said, I'm going to do something special for the outro part of the show. We have the intro where I begin the show, and this is the outro where I conclude the show. In this outro, I'm going to play you a segment of one of my older shows back in 2017 on loneliness. And what I went through when I was lonely after my divorce And what I learned while being lonely and what helped me not be so lonely. And I hope you get something from it. I'm just going to play it. It actually is part of the outro of that episode too. So I'm going to let it run, including the outro music that we play every time. You know, you are amazing. And it goes into that melody that I love. And I'm sure you do too. I'm just going to play it now, let it play. And um, this is, like I said, back in 2017. So you might hear some references that don't quite make sense today, but most of it will make sense. And I hope it helps. I appreciate you. Here it is. I want to end the show by reminding you that you're not alone. And let me share something with you. There was a period of time in my adult life that I spent 10 months in a dark cobwebby seller voluntarily <laughs> now it doesn't sound as uh, foreboding as I make it sound because you know I had lights <laughs> but I had to go upstairs to go to the bathroom and, but downstairs it was um, just a basic New England cellar that uh, wasn't exactly the best accommodations I did this after my divorce when I got divorced I decided to spend some time with my mom get to know her better because it's been years and uh, get to know her without my stepfather in the house. I mean, I grew up in a house where I didn't know my mom. I mean, I never knew who she was without that toxic influence in her life, in our lives. So after my divorce, I decided, you know what? I'm going to go live with my mom for a while. But the only room she had available was in the basement. It was a small house and uh, I decided, well, you know, what else have I got going on? I'm going to get my life back together here and I'm going to spend some time with her. And if that's where the only bed is, that's where I'm going to sleep. And I did. I slept down there and it was dark and uh, it was just my cat and I <laughs> when my cat was still around and um, he kept me company. 
So even though I was alone, I had a pet, and that was wonderful. I loved my cat. But I also had, you know, my little tablet computer. I can watch videos on my tablet computer. So I connected to her Wi-Fi. And at night, I was alone. I mean, yeah, my cat was there, but I had no conversation with my cat, even though I did converse every now and then with Ming. <laughs> but I was alone. There was no human contact. So I remember thinking, well, what am I going to do? I just feel so sad and lonely. And my mom usually went to bed early. So when she wasn't around, I was downstairs and there was still no human presence. I could chat with people. I can get on Skype. But I still went to bed alone. And it wasn't a good feeling. And uh, most of it was because I hadn't gone to bed alone in a long time. And so getting used to going to bed alone uh, was hard. And one of the things that helped was, like I said, my little tablet computer. Because I could watch videos. And I've noticed throughout my life, whenever I feel lonely and I turn on a video or a movie or a TV show, that I actually feel like I'm part of it. I actually feel like I'm part of something bigger. Like um, I'm involved with something. I'm part of the story. And so that would help. I mean, as silly as that may sound, I mean, that really did make me feel like that I wasn't alone because there were other people and they were conversing and I felt like I was part of it and I couldn't wait to watch the next chapter or the next show. So spending those months down in the basement gave me a lot of time for introspection and gave me a whole lot of time for healing. It wasn't important that I was lonely, even though that was a major factor going on in my life. It was important to realize that I became lonely when I focused on what I didn't have in my life. I became lonely focusing that I didn't have my wife anymore. And so that's the part that needed to heal. And that's why I talk about how important it is to really nurture and heal yourself before getting into a relationship. So when the relationship ends, even though it's inevitable that you'll feel sad, that you'll feel lonely, that you have some sort of foundation to come back to. So even though I did have lonely times after being with someone for eight years, I still had a somewhat solid foundation to begin with. But I had to go through that grieving process. The grieving process is temporary. It should be temporary. But being alone all that time gave me the opportunity to grieve, gave me the opportunity to think about all the things I needed needed to think about and get through and uh, especially nurture myself. Like, what would I do if I was my best friend? <laughs> what would I do with me? What would I say to me? I would say, you need to get out there and just, you know, start living your life. And that's what I did. I actually created a meetup group. And um, started meeting with them. Um, I started connecting with uh, family again because I had been so separated from them for so long. Uh, I started getting to know my mom in a new way that I'd never known before. I actually took the time and took advantage of that time of being alone by getting to know other people instead of just wallowing in my loneliness. And so Asha's song really hits me where it counts, remembering that time where I felt alone. And remembering times in the past where I felt alone. Not realizing that there's a whole world out there to meet or get to know better. People that were already in my life that I ignored pretty much for years and years and years. Because I had something else going on. And then when I renewed those relationships, uh, they became stronger. Now you may not have family like that that you can bond with. Maybe you don't get along with your family. 
but watching your favorite TV show is kind of a placator in place of people. I'm not saying that's what you should do, <laughs> but I'm saying sometimes it's helpful. But that could be during the nurturing and even grieving process. But then you go out and do the things that you would do if you were in a relationship. Except, what would you do if you were in a relationship but you had the day off to yourself? What would you do? I think that's a great way to look at it. If you're not in a relationship and one day you were by yourself, what would you do? And that's the kind of thinking I was starting to have: is that well, what would I do if I was in a relationship but she was gone for the day? Well, I might go do this and I might go do that. And I started doing those things and realized, oh. I can actually still enjoy life, even if、uh, someone else isn't in it, and that's what I want you to realize: that sometimes when you do feel lonely, that you can still enjoy life, even though you don't have someone else in it. And just because、uh, the next person may not be a romantic interest, it could still be a friendship. It can still be one of a number of contacts or connections for you to just share your thoughts with. And so, to kind of wrap that up, after ten months of spending my time in the basement. Getting my thoughts organized, and you know, during that period of time, I actually went to an online dating site for a month.、Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that story I've told on the air, but went to an online dating site, signed up, and after a month, I realized, wait, I'm not ready to date. <laughs> I'm living in my mom's basement, and I'm still grieving for my divorce, and all this stuff was going on, and I needed to self-nurture. I quit the site, but the day before I quit the site. A girl reached out to me and said, "Hey, I like your profile. Let's talk."、Uh, mostly, she wanted to talk shop because she liked the stuff I was doing in my life as far as business. And so I wrote back to her and said, "Hey, you know what? I'm I'm not going to be on this online dating site anymore. I'm not ready to date. In fact,、uh, I got a divorce. I'm not really working, and I'm living in my mom's basement. <laughs> If you want to keep talking, great. Otherwise, I wish you the best." And I just signed off that way. And she wrote back and said, "LOL, <laughs> your honesty is so refreshing." And I was like, "What? Why are you still talking to me? I'm an adult male living in my mom's basement. I don't understand." <laughs> and she just appreciated the fact that I was honest. And from that point on, we developed a really good friendship. It was long distance. She lived in Georgia. I lived in New Hampshire. And、uh, I was just honest with her. I'm not ready to date. And Great, we can be friends, and I can ask you about your dating life. But I just need to work on myself. And she loved it, and we we actually ended up talking almost every day. It was funny, and、um, eventually, after ten months, she was like, "You know, we could have something. I wonder what would happen if we were closer." And I was like, "Really? You want to try this dating thing?" And she's like, "Well, I don't know." So she、uh, flew up for some other purpose. We met. We got along great. And then she went back, and I flew down there, spent some time with her, and eventually I moved out of my mom's basement. <laughs> and、uh, that's the girl I'm with today, Asha. So there's some behind the scenes if you、uh, hadn't heard that before. And、uh, but the whole point is that I chose to be alone. I chose to be single. I chose to not be with anyone, even though it might result in loneliness, because I knew I needed to heal from that. I knew I didn't want to carry loneliness into my relationships, and I worked on that, and I went through a lot of healing, and a lot of the stuff that you hear on this show is a way to do that, is a way to nurture yourself so that you have a, a stronger emotional foundation going into any relationship. So you're not alone in the broad sense of things. There is this show. Some people have this show as 
uh, a part of their healing process. And healing during the lonely times is a great time to do it because that means you're rebuilding that inside of you so that you don't carry it with you. Sometimes it takes a while, but you are definitely not alone because you're listening to me right now. And because you're listening to me right now, you're not alone. You can hear my voice just like I used to watch those TV shows and feel like a part of it. You are a part of this. So I want you to remember to keep your mind open and step into your power and be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing. Amazing.